This podcast is a project of the Climate Designers Network. Hey, this is Eric. I hope all of you are having a great start to summer. In fact, the summer solstice is June 21st in the Northern Hemisphere. That's today. So happy summer, everyone. And one thing many of us love to do when it gets warm out is head out to the water. But what if that idyllic summer beach vacation nearly turned deadly? That gorgeous blue ocean was hiding a toxic secret. That's the beginning of the activism story for today's guest, Matilda Da Silva. Matilda runs a great nonprofit in Singapore called the Ocean Purpose Project. And it would have never likely been but for one fateful day at the beach that turned toxic, sickening her for the rest of her life. Today, she has put down her microphone from her comedian singing and TV days and picked up a new passion to make sure what happened to her doesn't happen to anyone else by conserving and regenerating our oceans and beaches. Matilda was a really fun guest. She's also really funny. But what I love most about her is that she cares. She cares a lot. And if you agree, after listening to this episode, pitch in to her nonprofit or simply join the ocean conservation movement that she is helping to lead. Hi, I'm Matilda De Silva, and I'm the CEO and founder of Ocean Purpose Project. We are a social enterprise that's based on the beaches of Pasiris in Singapore, and we work in ocean conservation, as well as turning ocean pollution into solutions. You can find out more about us on our website, www.oceanpurposeproject.com. Matilda, welcome to Climify. It's wonderful that we were finally able to connect and, and have you on the show today. Thank you so much, Eric. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, no problem. Uh, your journey into becoming a sustainability advocate is, is one that, first of all, I found inspiring. Just have to say that just at the start here. And it's, it's something that you put front and center um, on your website and the other kind of media about you online. And I find that, that that's actually really important for folks to see because all of us are in on this fight and, and we got here from somewhere. And so can you tell us more about this journey and, and how that led to the Ocean Purpose Project becoming what it is today? I know, Eric, how much time do you have? Yeah, uh, well. This, this is a long story. You know um, what? We can we can go as long as you want because your story is so interesting that I think it's important to tell. Yeah, thank you so much, um, you know, Eric, for sharing uh, that and like you know for for asking me as well. Like, um, it's one of those things where uh, I tell this story a lot, uh, and it's interesting to kind of see the reaction of of how people react to that, uh, especially people who've known me for a long time or. They've seen me on TV. Uh, I used to be on television a lot, a comedy show. I used to also be on Singapore Idol. I know. That is so awesome. So, you know, there's, there's a kind of a perception of, of me in Singapore uh, based on, um, you know, what they saw on television. Yeah. I, I used to work as a TV producer. I used to be the head of um, social media for, you know, national broadcasters, telcos, banks and stuff. So it's, it's one of those things where like... Um, there is like a, a public perception of me. There is a corporate perception of me. And then there's a sport perception of me. I mean, um, uh, I'm, not the, I'm not an athlete by any measure, but, um, you know, I used to represent Singapore in, 
in dragon boating, I used to, um, you know, I used to cycle like 35 kilometers to work and 35 kilometers wow. back. So, I mean, that's an athlete uh, in my book right there. That's an athlete for, yeah, for... yeah not too shabby. I mean, like, yeah, you know, no, I could actually stay phenomenal. on the dance floor until about 2 a.m. or 3 a.m., like, you know, back in the good old days. Um, <laughs> and you know, it's like, you don't, you take it for granted, I guess. Um, I was just going to say, like, the, the story about you coming from media is one that I find truly fascinating. Um, and I, I feel like it's, it's probably, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, been been pretty helpful in your new path at the Ocean Purpose Project. Well, to a certain extent. So, I mean, I, I came from that background. Uh, I'm not a scientist or an engineer. Um, I'm not a marine biologist. Um, I don't come from that field, but you know, uh, in 2015, I was representing my country in a dragon boat race in Boracay in the Philippines. I think you, you might have heard about this place, um, you know, on CNN, you know, mm -hmm. everybody talks about it as um, the place to be, beautiful beaches, party atmosphere. Yeah. And there's a dragon boat race that happens there every year. Um, and like, you know, all the celebrities descend on the island. It's a big deal as well. And um, it just so happened that that year, I was there for about just three days, like a weekend. Uh, and uh, when I came back home to Singapore, I was in the hospital because um, my immune system had shut down. Um, I oh was God. just, uh, uh, yeah, like uh, it, it was terrible. Like everything that you could possibly think of, um, I couldn't keep anything in. Everything was like, you know, just uh, leaving my body. Like, um, you know, it was, it was horrible. I was just like uh, in complete you know, disarray. I was like, okay, wait, hold on. If this is a bad hangover, yeah. like, you know, it's, it's kind of, um, you know, persisting for over a week, you know, what's, what is happening here? And in fact, I wasn't the only person that um, fell sick. You know, quite a few members of my team from Team Singapore were really sick. And some of the, like months later, when I found out that, um, you know, they, uh, there were quite a few Filipino dragon boaters who had to be, you know, who fell very sick and had to be airlifted out. Um, oh God. You know, and so, this was where I was like, okay, um, the official story was that uh, there was, uh, you know, kind of bad rice uh, that they served in the catering and that's why everyone felt sick. And I was like, I know about Chiao, but I was pretty sure none of us was eating no rice. And like, you know, <laughs> we're just having like, like uh, San Miguel's said, we're like surviving off uh, beers. So, you know, in 2018, a friend of mine sent me an article that said, um, hey, have you seen this? Like, they're actually going to close the island of Boracay for like uh, six months. So this is kind of like where I was like, what? What are you talking about? Like, you know, how do you even close an island, right? For six um, months. And apparently like, you know, president, yeah, for six months. And, you know, this was um, bizarre because, you know, this happened, I think, around uh, April uh, in 2018. And um, the official reason was that the government government of Philippines was going to close the island. This has been this was unprecedented, and President Roder Rodrigo Duterte actually called it a cesspool. In fact, um, you know the reason for this was that they were going to they discovered that you had a massive amount of um, sewage and all forms of waste that was literally just going straight into the touristic beaches. So for example, there was an, an increase in coliform bacteria level. Um, you know, there was fecal contamination. Uh, I mean, it was just like, you know, sewage, wastewater, everything was just going in, you know, untreated into 
um, these touristic beaches and it, it was insane. Like, you know, <laughs> and if, if you realize like, and I went back, um, you know, and looked at photos from 2015, we were like swimming in that. We were diving in that. We were paddling on that stuff. Like we were, That's you know, like it, it's, it's when you look at that and you think you're like, whoa, okay, this is insane. Now, here's the thing that, that kind of also hits when we're talking not just about the ecological damage to the area. I mean, um, you know, while we were there, year after year, I would go to Boracay and the people who run dive resorts, you know, they would just tell me that they have to keep going further and further out to see any kind of like, you know, uh, marine life because everything was almost in a dead zone. So that should have told us that something was going wrong. But like, you know, it's insane that um, you know, in that six months of them closing, you know, 1.4 billion Singapore dollars, right, um, of tourism revenue was gone. You know, yeah. this is like the, like, it brings in at least about 100 billion pesos of revenue to the Philippines. And the thing that I couldn't understand was like, wait, why is this happening to me? Like, I didn't do anything. Like, I'm, I'm a singer, I'm a performer, I'm on, you know, I'm TV. I, I just kind of went there to battle and represent my country, like. This is not fair, you know, like, first of all. Yeah, um, definitely. The second bit is um, for an island that is bringing in close to 100 billion pesos of tourism revenue, you would think that, you know, like um, the different government agencies and even the, the hotels and the, the different kinds of um, tourism, uh, you know, activities would get together and make sure that they're not just releasing like, you know, like... Um, uh, untreated sewage into yeah. their money-making machine. So I was just kind of like, okay, this doesn't make any sense. Now, if you kind of do a little bit of digging and research on your own, one of the things that uh, indicated that there was an excess of nutrient in the water, um, and we can see that in pictures uh, of the races, there was a, a like a green kind of tide that kept washing up on the beach. So a lot of the dragon boaters, we assume that that's because, you know, it's the, it's the wake or the wash from us paddling. But that green stuff was actually alvalatuka. And it was actually an algae that started to bloom um, that, you know, should have kind of pointed towards the direction that there was an excess of nutrient in the water. And, you know, this is again where, um, you know, uh, for me, I was trying to understand, okay, I'm only exposed to this for three days. How could my my health completely, you know, like um, uh, go into the toilet, so to speak? I I developed yeah. vitiligo within a month, so my skin started turning white. My hair is actually all white. I dye it black. Um, that's, if I've got to go on just, stage, that's terrifying to imagine. You know, you're just just a normal day like you had, and then it, it completely changed your life based on something that you would never have have expected in the in, in the ocean it's it's truly terrifying yeah i mean um it's one of those things where we read about people who are victims of air pollution water pollution um ocean pollution and they are usually people that you know kind of uh are on the front of a magazine we read a story about it and there is a disconnect a natural disconnect but when it happens to you, and I really don't sit well with this word victim of like ocean pollution, it, the, it really drives me nuts. Like, you know, like um, 
uh, I hate to be looked at as like a victim of any form. Like, you know, even when people kind of look at me and mm. I get I get asked about my face, like, why is your face half white and half brown? Oh, so poor thing, blah, blah, blah. It really drives me up the wall because like, you know, um, I'm, I'm just not of that character at all. So this sure. is again where I was thinking to myself, okay, um, again, like I, I was upset. I was... I was, you know, just kind of shocked and um, not understanding what I was supposed to do with this incident. And then I realized that there were a lot of people, um, I mean, even children, you know, on the island of Boracay who are starting to develop some of these white spots, um, you know, and, and this is again where like, you know, I realized that this, this conversation about ocean pollution uh, also needs to come from the people that are most affected by it. Yeah, uh, I live by the coast. I, I do live in front of the beach. Um, and I do believe like the, the two billion of us who do live in coastal areas, we, we have um, a responsibility and a duty and also a, a very important way of articulating why ocean conservation, uh, you know, the prevention of ocean pollution is so important. I mean, uh, just to put this in perspective, um, sewage as well as um, farm runoff make up a little bit over 50% of the total uh, ocean pollution um, type. You know, you've got litter, maybe about 8 to 10% marine litter. And, you know, you've got about 30% of that that's sewage. Gee. You know, so it's literally, um, you know, this topic isn't talked about a lot. No. We don't really spend a lot of, you know, uh, our waking hour chatting about it. It's very fashionable to kind of like, you know, keep, Referring to plastic as the major issue with our oceans, which yeah, that's is. what we hear all about in the news is the plastics and you know how we're trying to clean that up and the Pacific garbage patch, but we don't hear about. And this is also where I felt that um, I wanted to, I wanted to do something, um, yeah. you know, and in typical producer, TV producer, and media person fashion, I was like, all right, I'm just gonna go for all the beach cleanups with all of the different NGOs. And we're just going to like, you know, try and clean the beaches and I'm going to do my part. And one of the things that I felt while I was doing a beach cleanup was like, okay, where's all of this going? Right. Right. What about the stuff that we can't see? The same kind of chemicals or, or you know, like uh, biological materials that um, made me sick. What do we do about that? Uh, and I couldn't find answers. And, you know, this is also one of those things where, um, you know, I'm, not a very patient person. Uh, in fact, anybody that knows me um, will definitely say that I'm probably one of the most impatient people that you've ever met. <laughs> you can call it like, you know, just a remnant of being a TV producer because we're like, we ain't got time. Let's get to it real yeah, quick. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, this is where I felt that I wanted to do something, but I wasn't going to quit my, my great job at a bank or at a telco, um, you know, working, being the head of social media. I wasn't going to quit that. Uh, a steady job to go off and do something crazy like starting a social enterprise. And I don't know what possessed me, but, you know, I felt at the end of 2019 that 2020 was the year to go off and start an ocean conservation social enterprise. <laughs> and then I quit my great job and I did it in 2020. And then two weeks later, the whole world went into lockdown. Right. <laughs> we were not even allowed to go onto the beach, let alone outside of our houses. And I was like, oh my God, I made a mistake. Take me back. <laughs> this is, um, I, I tried to beg for my job back, but they were like, uh, no, nah, nah, that's not late. working. Yeah. Yeah. Too well, late. 2020 was actually probably the perfect year to do it because it was a complete reset, right? 
I don't know, my mental health wasn't like, you know, like perfect at the time because I was like, how am I supposed to do that? Um, yeah, you know, we scary. lost, we had 200 um, confirmed um, clients uh, in t- at the end of 2019. We lost 199 oh of them. God. 199? Just, yep. 199. We only had one Jeez. client less. And, that, you know, that's all. God. <laughs> yeah. I, can't, I, I mean, can't imagine being in that situation. That's that's scary. I lost a lot of hair, Eric. I'm going to tell you that. Oh but my thank God. God, like we we weren't able to go outside of the of the house. So nobody really saw how horrible I looked. Oh, no. Um, oh, no. <laughs> but it was one of those things where, um, you know, if I come to the, the building blocks of what what I wanted to do, uh, you know, this is again where, um, you know, I'm, I'm really intrigued by um, inventing. In fact, uh, um, you know, I did a couple of these profiling things, um, you know, like a Gallup profiling where they try to understand what your your character is about. And apparently one of oh, yeah. the characteristics of me is um, I'm a futurist. And I was like, mm-hmm, what's that mean? I I'm not trying that. to shoot a rocket to Mars or anything, but this is again where like, um, you know, I, I got to understand a bit more about myself and why um, maybe uh, I get irritated or frustrated with people not understand what I'm saying is because I'm, I'm seeing things um, come together in a way that don't necessarily seem apparent. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example. Um, I couldn't Dragon Boat anymore. And I used to be a Dragon Boat coach as well because I developed muscular spasms as part of this autoimmune issue. Um, and it was just embarrassing. I kept losing my paddle. I wasn't emotionally able to deal with it. Although most of my teammates were like, it's fine. We can just buy another paddle. And I was like, no, no, no. I, I'm not in the right headspace. I haven't kind of had my Oprah moment. Like, you know, I, I, I just want to paddle alone. So if I yeah. can have a muscular spasm or just drop in the, in, the, in the sea and just get back on the board and just sort it out myself. Yeah. Um, and while I was paddling in my beach town of Basaris, I noticed that the same kind of seaweed that was washing up at Boracay was also growing in my town. And mm-hmm. I was like, okay, wait a minute. Are we also facing this excess of nutrient? But another thing that I noticed is that the seaweed and the mussels, they were attaching themselves underneath flotation devices, they were growing in and among each other, creating natural ropes. You know, like um, you would have gracilaria and muscles attached to that. And then, you know, gracilaria attaches to those muscles and they start to form their own ropes. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. And then I would observe a lot of the local fishermen who paddle out on uh, kayaks, the recreational fish. They tended to go towards where these, these so-called curtains of seaweed and mussels were growing. And I was like, why are you, what, you know, what's so special about this area? And they were like, oh, you know, um, there's a whole lot of small fish that come here. They hide among the seaweed and the mussels. Um, you know, they, they attract bigger fish and that's why we're here. And you can see that the water, the visibility is actually clearer here than just two or three meters away. So this was where I was like, oh, this is interesting. And so, you know, this kind of began the journey where I felt that I wanted to build something which is Ocean Purpose Project today that addresses all forms of ocean pollution, but really looks at the source of the pollution and understands it a little bit deeper. So for example, um, when we talk about uh, alva lactuca or sea lettuce, right? That's what um, we- Sea lettuce. Yeah, I don't know what that is. What's sea lettuce? Yeah, that's the common name of that. Uh, Basically, it's an edible green algae um, that's in, you know, the family uh, ulvaceae. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but it's in the genus of ulva. 
Now, what's interesting is the algae is agnostic. It's neither bad nor good. It just is, right? Um, us as humans kind of like, oh, you know, um, the algae bloom in Boracay is where, like, you know, this is what's adding to the problem. Um, whereas uh, alva lactuca does occur naturally in this part of the world. Yeah. And in fact, you know, it's, um, you can find this uh, at any aquarium shop and things like this. And this is also kind of where, uh, you know, I found it very interesting. And I was trying to understand like, you know, okay, what uh, about this alva is able to maybe right a lot of the wrongs with regards to sewage in the water or excess chemicals, you know? So for example, in the place that I live in the north of Singapore, during this period of time, um, actually from December, uh, late December until about January, we had heavy rain, uh, even until February, terrible, intense rain. There was a massive flooding that was happening uh, uh, just above us in Malaysia, in Johor. And, you know, we, I think about two weeks ago, we encountered, um, you know, thick orange scum on the top of, um, you know, uh, the seawater. Like literally it, it expanded from like the entire northern, northeastern uh, seaboard of Singapore. And what I was trying to understand and what I've been talking about for the longest time is how do, you know, things like agricultural runoff, chemicals from fertilizers, um, yes. you know, from oil palm plantations or other kind of plantations in the north, you know, when heavy rain comes in, it washes into our neck of the woods and it does cause an excess of nutrient in the water, which does lead to algae bloom, uh, right, you know, right, to yeah. phytoplankton bloom. This is, a, this is again where, how do you, how do you solve that? Right. No, there is yeah. no like tech solution. There is no big AI solution. We can uh, kind of um, identify roughly when this is going to hit, but we don't have like a solution right now. I think to give an American example, all of that sargassum that's washing up in Florida right now. Um, oh, the, the, you know, red, I, I the saw red a, algae, a yeah. comedy sketch on the seaweed, Daily the Show. Red seaweed, yeah. That's right. Like you can tell that it's coming. You can kind of predict. But, you know, to date, we haven't been able to figure out how we prevent it from even, mm. you know, kind of blooming in the first place. And this is really where uh, our work at Ocean Purpose Project in creating curtains of seaweed and mussels that grow on floating fish farms in the north of Singapore. Um, they basically like, you know, kind of uh, biohack uh, the, the properties of the seaweed and these mussels where... Um, they are absorbing, like, you know, the, from the external of the farm, they're absorbing all of this excess fertilizers. So, for example, a lot of the ammonia, uh, a lot of the nitrogen-based uh, substances. And, yeah, um, from the fertilizer. You know, it's create... Exactly. And you cannot consume that, so that's not for eating. And yeah. so this <laughs> is, again, where for the fish that grow in the nets um, that are submerged in the sea, um, inside of this curtain, they are far more receptive to, you know, um, these sea and muscle curtains, as opposed to very loud, um, you know, like uh, machine-based water filters um, that use these round plastic pellets to kind of filter through the water. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, of course, those plastic pellets, they do end up washing up on the beaches. So, you know, this is again where I felt that I really wanted a systems approach. I wanted to understand what the issues are. I wanted to yeah. rope in the, the community, which is our traditional fish farmers, who have been there from generation to generation. And I also wanted to, you know, get information from indigenous people who used to live in my town. Uh, the last one who is still working at one of the farms, you know, he would tell me stories of how certain types of uh, seaweed could be boiled and turned into a jelly. Um, you know, certain kind of uh, wild boar 
uh, love to eat um, that alva lactuca, that green seaweed, because it's like a it's like a sweet, it's like a treat for them. Interesting. And you know yeah. all these stories, all of the science, you know, working with universities like James Cook University, um, you know, it really allowed us to be able to understand a little bit more about the ecology of the place. And this is again where we are already seeing data that explains very clearly that there is a market reduction of ammonia nitrate and nitrites it's um, working. where our seaweed mussel lines are planted as opposed it's working. Uh, it's not like, you know, kind of removing everything, but it's reducing. And I think, you know, having a native species do that and really getting nature, working hand in glove with nature as opposed to, oh, you know, bloom is bad. Um, yes. You know, all of that stuff. You know, like I said, there's no bad or good in nature. Nature just is. Um, you know, and this is again where I felt that as a TV producer, I interview a lot of people from different necks of the woods, whether they are researchers or government agency people, or whether they are uh, community leaders, NGOs. And, you know, that way of working uh, in the creative sphere, well, you're in design, I guess this yeah. will help. That way of working and, and roping in different viewpoints, you know, um, was really something that I wanted to bring to each ocean purpose project. So, you know, that gives you a bit of explanation, I think, in yeah. terms of, um, you know, what we do and why. You weren't kidding. This was a, a long but interesting story. And I saw a bio of you online that I love because you called yourself the farmer in chief of seaweed, corals, and mussels that will save our seas. Oh, no. That sounds a bit full of... Uh, did you write that one or is that something from another like news organization or something? Because the farmer in chief of seaweed, corals, and mussels. Yeah, I mean, um, I I am kind of the farmer in chief in yeah, OPP. You are, but um, I work. I'll, to be honest with you, I work closely with with the with the fish farmer himself. So he's probably the farmer in chief. I'm more <laughs> of like you know like the assistant in chief, the assistant, or like whatever person. that yeah, is. Okay. Um, Got it. Yeah, I you know it's it's also trying to get uh, a lot of the traditional farmers on board because. If you've been growing fish all your or rearing fish all your life, they don't necessarily know about seaweed. Um, and it's kind of yeah, interesting no. because yeah, I mean, I'm in the same boat. I, I don't know much yeah. about it. And I'm wondering, is, is that um, on, on one of the three pillars that you have in the Ocean Pur Purpose Project is bioremediation. Is that re bioremediation that you're doing with these floating uh, things in the ocean? Definitely. So, you know, what we've been trying to do is to, to use the living organisms that grow natively in past series. And we don't just um, refer to academic uh, research that is written about this to verify whether they have been native to the area. We speak with um, a host of um, traditional fisher uh, folk. We speak to indigenous people in the area. We speak to residents in the area. Uh, we do a lot of observation work. And so this is really where we get an understanding of, you know, how these organisms such as seaweed and mollusks, such as mussels, how they can, you know, remove contaminants and pollutants from the water um, and what we can do with those materials. So the bioremediation pillar is kind of interesting because, you know, it's something that, um, I mean, I've had a couple of young people interviewing to be interns and they're like, I don't know, it seems a bit complicated. I never heard of it before. And like, you know, sounds very sciencey. Can you kind of like give me something simple? And, you know, this is again where I think there's so much of possibility for us to spread this message yeah. of working hand in glove with nature with these kinds of regenerative concepts. 
especially with native species. And, you know, what we're also um, learning about bioremediation is that, you know, uh, this is not just something that we do in our little town in Pasiris, but, you know, it's already been done in, you know, many different kinds of um, incidences. Uh, I mean, you know, like uh, there was the Exxon Valdez spill where bioremediation was employed. Uh, you know, there's there's so many different types of bioremediation, you know, biostimulation, um, bioaugmentation, intrinsic bioremediation. There's so many ways in which this could work. But um, for us, what we're doing is all of that seaweed and mussels that grow in the periphery, we are trying to build the case for us to to take some of that material and turn that into biostimulants and biofertilizers and even compost that can be used for a herb garden. So if you come to our beach offices uh, in Pasiris, it's the first beach office in Singapore that, you know, it's off-grid and, you know, it's specifically on, like, on the beach itself. Like from That's our amazing. office, you can literally see the sea. Um, just next to it, you know, yeah, we're in a national park. It's, it's wonderful. You know, so we work hand-in-glove with Park Singapore and we're really trying to, to create this link where, you know, we don't need to use chemical uh, fertilizers anymore, mm -hmm. where we can very clearly explain how seaweed and algae, as well as, uh, you know, um, uh, mollusk shells or waste shells can be turned into, into you know, fertilizers for yeah, plants and not just any. I heard someone say that healthy soil can lead to healthy oceans. And 100%. I think, yeah, and what you're doing with, with the seaweed and, and the, what would be considered, you know, waste uh, back on land as fertilizer is super smart. Hundred percent. I mean, you know, like um, this is again where I felt that, you know, we. I mean, don't get me wrong. We do beach cleanups in in Ocean Purpose Project. You know, that's kind of what pays everybody's salaries and you know uh, keeps our solar lights on, <laughs> so to speak. Um, <laughs> you know, pays for the rent and all of that yeah, stuff. Definitely, um, you got to do that. Uh, we got to do that. Um, you know, um, of course, we also you know, take things one step further with our beach cleanups where a section of the plastics collected, the ocean plastics, the stuff that cannot be mechanically recycled. Um, you know, we are basically trying to create a system that converts that ocean plastic into hydrogen, uh, a mobile system. So I'll share a little bit about that in a moment. But, you know, it's really also about saying um, for us, um, let's say for somebody who's, uh, a part of a community that is facing ocean pollution. Um, you know, I feel it's so important for people like us around Southeast Asia and around the world to be thinking about how, uh, as a system, we're able to reinvent, disrupt existing systems of how ocean pollution is thought about, how it's treated, right. and bring that connection between the land and the sea. Because, you know, you're absolutely right. What we do on land affects our oceans. Um, yes. What we do in our oceans affects our land as well. So if, you know, agricultural runoff is what's causing uh, chemicals at sea that is also causing algae bloom, then, you know, um, pollution at sea is also washing up in, in droves on our beaches. I mean, this yeah. first half of the year we see, I believe in one corporate cleanup, we actually picked up 500 kg in just like under uh, 45 minutes. We did a beach cleanup, 500 kgs. Of, yeah, plastic and Jesus. waste. It, it was insane. You know, um, uh, I felt bad for the poor people that were doing this cleanup. You know, they, they've been in the <laughs> they, office they had most of their lives. <laughs> yeah. I, I was like, y'all better stretch with me. Like, yeah, you know, you just before do we do yoga. this thing, I'm like, I'm touching 40. I know I'm going to hurt. Like, you know, y'all better make sure you well, like, you know, get your stretch on. And 
drink some well, isotonic because we're going to pick up a lot. Yeah, well, I wonder, like you talked about disrupting the systems, and, and I think that's totally right. Like if you want to change the system, right, you have to do something pretty radical, right, or else it'll just continue to function. And I'm wondering, like, as a designer or someone making something, what what can we do better to prevent some of these things that you're seeing in the, in the land and then back into the oceans? You know, I think... Um... This is really interesting that you're coming at this from a design perspective. Um, you know, there's so many different principles of design, contrast, balance, emphasis, proportion, yeah. you know, rhythm, pattern, repetition, all of that stuff. Um, you know, I think the, uh, this is also something that's interesting to me because um, repetition is uh, something that like, you know, kind of uh, catches my eyes. So, um, you know, with us and each project that we do, it's really about solution focused. You know, um, a lot of our staff working at Ocean Purpose Project is sometimes like, oh my God, if I ask Matilda a question, she's literally just going to like throw the question back at me and go like, what do you <laughs> think we should do? You know, like, um, and very often um, I start to see like, you know, like how a lot of the issues around pollution uh, are repeating themselves, you know? And so this is again where, what we're trying to do is to disrupt the existing system and create um, communication strategies, to create ideation strategies, to create um, systems in place that, that would uh, create brand new um, strategies that are repeated. To yeah. do that requires us to really kind of reinvent the wheel. So, you know, I like to use our town as an explanation. So a lot of people are like, I want to do a beach cleanup at this location and another location. Why do I always have to do this at your beach in Pasiris? And so, you know, what we've been trying to do is create a prototype of our little beach town, which actually Pasiris in Malay, when you translate it into English, means white sands. Hmm. You know, so in order for us to really have white sands, what's it going to take? And, you know, like um, the imagery that comes to mind of these coconut trees by the side of the beach it's not just a, a jeep or a, or, a, or a picture, you know. Yeah, it's it. actually, it's, it is what we experience in our, in our beautiful beach town. And sure, every day. You know, in all of our communications, the pictures, the videos. Yeah, we're, we're trying to, to basically use the, the imagery, use the, even use music, you know, um, get people to understand that beauty of the town. You know, um, in fact, we did a beautiful storytelling uh, series so there's a couple of ways that we use design uh, to tell the story and to get people to to treasure what it is that we have in our beach town. So one of them is working with uh, a school called School of the Arts. And although they're called School of the Arts, they actually do a fantastic science program. Um, you know, and we have a, a wonderful student there who has been creating comic art. Oh, animals yeah. that live in yeah that live in our beach town, and through the comic art, you know, um, for example. Um, there's Dushi the Dugong or Manatee, I think you would call them in, in the yeah, US. Yeah, Manatee. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So Dushi um, loves seagrass and Dushi communicates a lot about seagrass and blue carbon um, systems. You've got Mianmi the mudskipper um, who doesn't realize <laughs> um, that she's wearing noodle packets um, and she thinks it's fashionable. You I want to see and these comics. She... They, sound, they sound super cute. Three. Yeah, you can find them on our Instagram. And it's really interesting because the characters 
um, as, uh, basically playing the characters of, of, you know, people in our town. Um, they're addressing issues that we have uh, around plastic waste, around seagrass and, and stuff. But it's also a way for us to, to when we do our school programs with preschool kids, uh, through songs, I sing songs and I do a storytelling with these cartoon characters. And we get our children to understand uh, what's happening at our beach through these yeah. characters. So that's one way of how we do that. We're about to launch a Tiny Desk concert type series um, oh, at our beach awesome. office. Yeah, it's, it's, we're looking forward to that. We've already got like um, amazing solar power DJs called Wild Pearl who come and spin. Wait, what? For us. <laughs> what is this? Solar power DJs? Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, they even. You have the coolest organization. And uh, have a solar panel that they bring to the beach itself when we're doing a beach cleanup and then they bring it back to our office and then they just, they're just spinning, creating different kinds of music while we're, you know, doing our beach cleanups and stuff. And, you know, this is again where that creativity, that music, that, that artwork, um, you know, it's, it's blending into the science of what we do. Yeah. You know, I mean, I we, can see that. Yeah. And it's, it's touching people in different ways and starting to open up conversations that, um, might not have, uh, or links that might not have come. So for example, um, I kind of had an idea of how I wanted to take the, the sound of our seaweed muscle lens. They do release a sound. Uh, yeah, what, you know, what, is this, what does it sound like, like? The bubbles. And... Sounds kind of like, uh, like popcorn popping. Like, you know, um, we wanted to have like an undersea microphone um, and record that yeah. and get our DJs to mix that. That and, would be fantastic. You know, the, this is again where like, and it takes one step further. We have, um, you know, members of uh, the Down Syndrome Association who reached out to us um, and said that we, they, they have their own dance instructors who are, um, you know, individuals with special needs who want to come and spend time with us at our office. They want to learn what wow. we do. They want to observe the seaweed and they want to create a dance and teach it to us and teach it to our community. <laughs> and you know, they, I that think it's beautiful how we're, you know, we're, um, we're spreading into different things and the community is starting to jam with us. No, they are like literally with, with your DJs. Um, yeah. That, they're jamming. Like, you know, it's, it's that, I mean, you have a concept about movement, about variety, about unity and design. And, you know, it's, it's, this is again where like, um, you know, we're bringing that in. And what's really interesting is that the most active of people are the people that are also giving us intriguing insights and asking crazy questions about the science behind our projects. So I'll give an example. Um, one of the religious leaders in our town uh, was a priest. Um, you know, he, he loves all the music stuff. Um, he's Filipino. He enjoys music, singing, dancing, all of that. And, you know, he was talking about the movement um, uh, of the plastic that's at sea and how it's uh, approaching the shore. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he gave an interesting example of how at different uh, sections of the shore, you see different sizes of plastic waste. At a certain section, you'll see like the microplastic type stuff. At another section, it's all plastic bottles. and another section, it's all, um, you know, fragments of plastics. And, you know, he was kind of like, um, there, is there a way to be able to, you know, at, uh, at sea itself, because at sea it's all mixed, right? Figure yeah. out how, um, you know, you could capture that movement of the wave and, you know, prevent it from even ending up on shore. Um, 
you know, and I think uh, it's amazing how, you know, when we put people in that space, um, that creative space, when we, when we get them to, to start, you know, thinking, um, you know, laterally, when we get them to start realizing that we're not just here doing beach cleanups, ocean conservation, yeah. you know, um, but we also do mention things like, for example, um, seaweeds in our town grow at a rate of 14% per day. Um, you know, that just triggers yeah. some creative stuff. You know, somebody that's, might, might want to do lot. an artwork on it. Somebody might, might want to create a song. Yeah. Um, you know, somebody might want to deep dive and understand exactly why. What are the conditions that are causing that? You know, um, so th this is also um, the kind of jamming environment, that creative environment that I want to create in our beach office where you just have that, that great vibe that attracts that tribe um, who are just, you know, ready to kind of get stuck in and, and create. Yeah. What, what, one of the things I think that you do really well is this co-creation with the community. And I think that, and you can tell me how this has been working for you, but I really think that that is, as one of your pillars is behavior change in your, in your organization. I feel like that co-creation is really helping people see, right, the forest for the trees, or in this case, the ocean, and what they can do to help. Definitely. I mean, you know, um, one of the key issues that we are having uh, is really how do we, in order for you to drive behavior change, um, it has to be fun, whatever it is that we're trying to do, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. you can kind of slice it many ways, but like, you know, standing in the sun uh, in like absolute like smelly trash that huh. is, uh, is not fun for a lot of uh, Singaporeans, let alone for a lot of people. Nobody. It's how do we, you know, how do we use behavior change messaging how do we create, you know, like um, a very clear call to action? How do we, you know, um, express um, how the action of just removing that plastic on the beach is a small step towards a possible solution being derived from it? Um, let's say, like, large scale plastic to hydrogen. How do we explain the relevance of it? You know, so this is again where, like, um, you know, when people are like, what's a big deal, man? I mean, just bring my own garbage bag and a bunch of tongs and just clean up the beach myself. I don't need to like, you know, like pay you an NGO to, to do all of this stuff. And anyway, plastic to hydrogen sounds real highfalutin and you're not even an engineer. What are you doing? Um, I mean, I get this on a daily basis. So it's also where explaining the relevance of why um, as an NGO, we really need to like, you know, step outside the zone or the box that we've been assigned. Um, you know, how we need to do more than just raising awareness uh, you know, we're not going to change the world through a, a TikTok dance alone. We need to step that up and say, like, you know, what else is coming from that? How do we use, you know, these things or these platforms of social media or, or even like, you know, different artistic platforms to, to uh, you know, explore big ticket issues, yeah. you know, energy, food, water. This is what the world is grappling with in sustainability. You know, when we say all of that ocean plastic that nobody wants to touch, we could turn that into hydrogen. Um, right. You know, it's so simple, but it's so complicated. But if we had enough people, let's say all of the people who, you know, keep trying to figure out how we can build a smaller iPhone, if we had those kinds of people working on, on this kind of project, we would be able to crack that in like a year max. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be down to help with that, right? And 
I, I think you said earlier on that that you're not a scientist, you're not a marine biologist, but you're a creative person. And I think that that creativity that you're bringing into this, I think is even more important really than the science. And I, I really commend you on that. Well, thank you so much, Eric. Dick. And I can understand the, the struggle for, let's say, somebody who's been you know, dedicating, uh, and I, I'm literally like, you know, mentioning like two individuals who spent 10 years, a decade of their life, you know, literally just like, um, in a lab day in, day out, focused on like thermocatalytic and bioconversion of biomass of, of mm -hmm. plastics of, you know, understanding how syngas production relates to hydrogen, trying to create the, the hydrogen classification system. So, I mean, you know, a lot of my life and, uh, uh, is also spent with these people who who are the scientists who've, you know, dedicated a, a significant portion of their life and, and you know, and, and their, their brain capacity towards developing these systems. But because they're, they're so plugged in to that stuff, I find it riveting. But a lot of people are like, whoa, that's a lot of concept. That's a lot of big words. Um, I'm seeing a lot of graphs. I don't understand that. Give right. it to me. Yeah, you can tell the story, right? You're good at that. In like two sentences. And, yeah. you know, that kind of like oversimplification, um, you know, of, of some of the, the, the big scientific issues around sustainability is also what's getting the scientific community really put off and irritated by it. And yeah. I do believe that like, you know, my role maybe is to, is to kind of like, you know, like decipher and to figure out how we can pull different kinds of researchers from different universities around the world, how we can pull them together and how we can kind of get them to jam the way that we've been jamming with our, um, you know, arts and community people. Um, and I think, you know, this is also a chance for them, um, you know, two researchers that we work with um, who are always stuck in the lab. I actually invited them for a kayak and clean competition where they had to represent their, their university. And, you know, when they were out on the water, looking at what washed up, they had a brand new perspective about marine plastics, about how wow. prevalent it is, about why the work is important, you know? And I think um, our role is also in bringing that, um, that kind of behavior change, you yeah. know, um, uh, about, you know, from, from the people who I would say it can be a bit, like you can get jaded working on this stuff because, you know, in between trying to get a grant to fund your research, um, you know, and all of that stuff, um, explaining to to, you know, um, influencers who get the science wrong. Um, people are trying to sensationalize things just so that they can drive investment into certain areas. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it can really be very heavy emotionally on the science community. And this is, again, where what we're trying to do is just to light that spark and, and figure out how, um, if we're struggling to do it alone, maybe this partnership and ecosystem approach is what's needed. Yeah, that leads me to a question for you, and that is, you know, you've, Talked about a lot of these projects you've done. Do you have one that's your favorite? Maybe it was very successful. One that I, someone can emulate somewhere else in the world. Oh, that's fantastic, Eric. Um, you know, basically, our there's lots of projects. There's the um, the plastic to hydrogen bit is a little bit slow, but we're so lucky that uh, our local uh, our government in Singapore um, chose us to speak at COP27, um, not on right. like uh, NGO day or on water day, but on energy day, um, you know, and you had a lot of people just kind of going like, 
oh no, is she going to slam all of us? Uh, and I was like, <laughs> no, I'm here to talk about how plastic can be turned into hydrogen guys. You know, um, and so this is, uh, that was a great success. Um, you know, we're really thankful for that kind of government support from different divisions, you know, from Prime Minister's Office, from Ministry of Sustainability and Environment, from National Parks, from NEA, National Environment Agency, that just kind of like, you know, like puts a bit of sail in our wings and helps us to, you know, have a little bit more authority when we speak to, to international um, agencies and governments. But, you know, a project that I think um, I should mention, and I think I've talked about our seaweed stuff. I, I love um, working with our farmers, but a project that I should mention that can be replicated is our beach office. So, you know, I, I hated working in an office building um, uh, with aircon and having to wear like high heel shoe and all of that. I, I hate all of that formality. <laughs> I just, it drives me up the wall. Yeah. Like being in the cubicle is like, you know, I'm like Neo in, in the Matrix. Like, you know, I'm like, just want yeah, somebody to just I call me and get me out. I can't stand it either. Cannot stand yeah. cubicles. <laughs> and I keep dream. I, I dreamt of the day when I could go to work with no shoes and work on the beach. And, you know, what I'm so proud of is that, you know, um, we had many iterations of our beach office. And I think that's something that anybody that's working in oceans, um, you know, uh, I'm really sorry for all of you who want grants, um, you know, where they've put you in a, in a commercial factory building and, you know, and <laughs> you've got to have a free co-working <laughs> space there. But um, I'm just about to tell you that you can't work for oceans if you're not on the ocean. You need to be there. Yeah. You need to be, you need to see it. You need to, I mean, get a boat if you can. Like if somebody can sponsor you a boat and I'm just putting this out there, Eric, anybody that's this thing, if you got a boat and you want to send it over to us, um, I'm going to put your sticker and your face on it. But you know, that would really help. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, that beach office is, is so important. Um, and that's something that I'm so proud that the materials used to build our beach office, every single piece of furniture, it's all recycled materials. You know, the panels outside of our building, you know, they're, they're made out of uh, F1 event structures. Um, what's holding it all together is a technology called Tubula. It's a Singaporean technology where you what kind of that? plug and play like Lego. Um, it's like um, kind of like uh, sticks that allow you to plug all the Lego pieces together. Oh. We have recycled solar panels um, from a wonderful research team. Um, Nanyang Technological University solar research team. That's what powers us. I mean, you know, like uh, plants, we have plants that have been donated to us from even some of our interns as well. Um, you know, it's, that's, I think, something that can be replicated when you're building your, your beach office or your ocean conservation office. You know, think about um, what materials are, uh, can be salvaged and can be used to build your little um, you know, um, your workspace, um, you know, figure out how you could work on the oceans, how you could actually, you know, uh, have a space where the community can come see you because, you know, like one of the things that we realized, um, when, you know, we are, we are popular on social sort of, we're not very popular, but okay. But once we had a beach office, you know, the curiosity from people, from children, from, you know, uh, elderly that come up to us, um, the questions they ask. The learnings that they have, you know, I think that's something that if you're going to be doing ocean community work, you need to have a community presence. So I yeah. would suggest that that's probably a, a big success that we've got, um, you know, and working, uh, we are in a national park. So, you know, having that relationship, um, it's not always easy, but it's something that both parties really take a lot of effort to work on. 
and really understanding, you know, how important this kind of, of movement is for our oceans. Um, you know, I think, you know, those are things that can definitely be replicated. Yeah, no, I could, I could see that it's a great, um, selling point to get more people involved in the kind of work that you're doing is so many people love the beach, right? Well, Hey, come move to the beach and, uh, you'll be part of, um, saving it. Oh, we're going to write that down. <laughs> we're going to write that down. That sounds real good. Hey, you're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're coming to up to the end here and the, the question that I ask all my guests is, is one that I'm even more excited to ask you because I f feel like you have so many good solutions to, to many different problems that this is going to be uh, a pretty, pretty amazing um, idea here. And what, what I'm wondering is if you were uh, asked to uh, switch places with me and you're a design educator, uh, what kind of, what, what kind of project or projects would you assign knowing what you know and the work that you do? Whoa, Eric. Mind blown. <laughs> Mind blown. Yeah. <laughs> it's a tough one. What's the, what's the profile of, of student that you usually encounter? Oh yeah. Well, my listeners, right. will encounter students from undergraduate to graduate. They are either fr maybe from the country uh, living in the city, uh, it's kind of a wide variety, right? It's, it's not just one type and ethnicity and experience. It's, it's diverse. So, um, that doesn't really help you, does it? But that's, that's who we deal with on a daily basis. Well, I, I guess if I was Eric Benson, um, <laughs> is it Prof Eric Benson, Dr. Eric Benson? I, I have nobody ever call me professor, but um, uh, I don't know. You can call me professor. That's fine. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> if I was Professor Eric Benson, um, yeah, I think um, one of the things that we've realized from, let's say, students who who are from overseas universities who who come over and and they do like uh, research tourism with us, uh, um, you know, I realized that a lot of uh, a lot of students from different universities are looking for uh, projects in sustainability that they can get hands on. Um, you know, they don't want to approach things from a very theoretical model anymore. Yeah. They want to get hands on. They want to understand what they can contribute to a particular project um, with their relevant expertise. So, for example, we had uh, uh, someone who's from engineering background and another bunch of students from uh, agricultural background. And so they looked at our herb garden and they, they gave us some tips and, and examples and ideas of in their country, um, you know, how, um, uh, they would do allotments, um, you know, the flow of the allotments, how they should be built, et cetera. So that was really interesting for the Singapore team because we were like, oh, okay, that's cool. That's a nice exchange of information. They got very hands-on with us. So they, yeah. they were actually, you know, in the mud, um, building stuff. And I think, you know, that, um, that also is a way of, of, you know, getting people from different countries, different thought processes, different, um, uh, departments of learning to start figuring out how they can jam with each other and, and work on things. Um, it doesn't all have to be, you know, like, uh, okay, come and, 
and help us, um, you know, figure out how we can crack, um, find a more efficient way of uh, emission capture for our plastic to fuel machine or, or come and plant seaweed muscle lines and, you know, capture data on the water quality uh, when we do water quality assessments. I mean, you know, it can also be creative things, you know, um, creation of um, uh, TikTok educational um, videos that are less than a minute that really, um, you know, help uh, these very esoteric concepts or, or hard to grasp um, words such as bioremediation, such as, um, you know, uh, uh, thermochemical conversion, understanding these kinds of things. So this is again where like um, for us, what we tend to do is um, with all students that work with us, we, I do a presentation and I share what it is that we do. Mm -hmm. And from there, um, you know, we create like a kind of a jam session where the students themselves identify what they feel are the problems and the challenges. Um, you know, they come on site with us and then again, they refine what those problems and challenges are. And then we just go off and say, okay, share with us what kind of project you want to do. Uh, and then, you know, we can help you along, uh, but you guys own it and like, you know, and take it to the, to the end. An example for, uh, is how we had a group of students from the School of the Arts, um, you know, and they wanted to work on research. And so they created a, a fantastic research paper around seaweed, Asian seaweed species, um, carbon sequestration potential, some of the challenges in place. And the research paper was so good. We were able to take that and turn it into an Asian geographic article. Wow. We were able to present that at the UN Ocean Conference. And these are, I'm talking about like 17-year-olds. Yeah, that's um, a success a story right maybe there. Maybe five or six of them. And three of them, yeah, three of them actually uh, are working as interns with us right now. So it's amazing because um, I didn't expect that they were going to deliver such an amazing body of work. They were so motivated. And, you know, for us, we were able to really take that and make that go a long way. Um, so I yeah, think that's wonderful a wonderful project. That's a good that, that, I mean, clearly, right, you have uh, a really good framework there for someone else to emulate in, in, in a similar type of scenario. So thank you for that. That, that was great. It was, it was also great having you on the show today. Um, it was very entertaining and very informative. I've learned a lot about what you're doing and I really appreciate it because it needs to be done. Someone has to do it. Thank you so much, Eric. Uh, you're most welcome to come over to Singapore and to Passeris and bring all your students with you. Oh yeah, they'd love that. I, I would too. <laughs> we got a lot of stuff to do. Yeah, well, before we go, where can we find you online again? So you can learn more about us on our socials. That's at Ocean Purpose Project. You can also find out about us uh, on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube. What else have we got? Uh, <laughs> everything. We got an, everything in the kitchen sink. Uh, you can also find us on our website, uh, Ocean Purpose Project. That's www.oceanpurposeproject.com. This podcast is co-produced by Bianca Sandico and me. A big special thanks to Ellen Keith Shaw and Christine Pilot for their gorgeous work on our new branding, Batul Rashik and Mark O'Brien for their continued design help, Brandy Nichols and Michelle Wynn for their strategic guidance and always supporting me on this podcast. If you enjoy the work we all do here and you have a spare minute or two, we would truly appreciate it if you left a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. The more folks that review our program, 
the higher the algorithm pushes up Climify in the search results. And in turn, the more likely we all can learn how to become climate designers.